After an introduction like that, I can't wait to hear what I have to say. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, in a research study on anger published in March earlier this year by the UK Mental Health Foundation, it was called Boiling Point. They warned that one in three of us has a friend or relative who can't control their temper. We're all right, it's the friends and relatives who have the problem. <laughs> and that one in four of us is battling with an anger problem. The report goes on to say that anger is seen as the root cause of mental and physical health problems in relationships, including family and even working relationships, where it is described as more likely to have a negative effect than any other emotion. Chronic and intense anger is linked to heart disease, stroke, cancer, and even common physical illnesses, including colds and flu. As well as poor health, it gives rise to increased risk-taking, poor decision-making, and even substance abuse. People who are chronically angry die younger and are six times more likely to heart attack. So this is the official research and that's the serious subject for our consideration this evening. Serious issue, serious problem. So to start with, let's consider everyday causes of anger. Now these are the ordinary, everyday, in-your-face kinds of anger, which are often so habitual that they pass as normal behavior and certainly seem far removed from the dire consequences we've been just looking at. Whether it is mild irritation with traffic jams, or not being able to find your keys, or forgetting to bring something with us, family not turning off the lights, motorists taking up two car spaces, friends who are always late, even leaving the cap off the toothpaste, all these little mild things like that, any of which are capable of releasing the anger demon. I was in the airport this evening just before I came up, and I was reminded of the story of the lady who turned up for her flight, which was delayed. And so she went to the kiosk, and she bought a, a magazine and a packet of biscuits, and she sat down to wait, and she started to read the magazine and eat the packet of biscuits. Then an amazing thing happened. The gentleman beside her, every time she took a biscuit, he put his hand in and he took one. He took a biscuit as well. So, obviously, this caused her some concern. So she sat there, eating the biscuits. She took one, he took one. Anyway, this went on, and so there was only one biscuit left. And she said, oh, this is really too much. He put his hand in, broke the biscuit in half, took his half, and left a half for her. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. So she jumped up and decided she couldn't take any more, and started to walk towards the check-in. And she opened her purse. And in her bag was a packet of biscuits unopened. She'd been eating his biscuits. <laughs> so, uh, there was the anger. <laughs> anger just by what she thought was going on. So we'd be very, very careful with this. So, with anger, you have to be careful because with anger comes a loss of control. And with a loss of control... We're technically, clinically insane. When you're clinically insane, anything can happen. And when anything can happen, we're totally, obviously, irrational. And the most often used explanation for our behavior is that we lost the head. So, at the other end, however, of the anger spectrum is a much more serious, 
where the same losing the head can have horrific consequences. Just look at a couple of examples of this here. It happens in all areas of life. So here's one, air rage, hospital rage, (laughs) nurses living in daily fear of aggressiveness. This one is fairly close to home here where you have business rage with Sean Quinn and what happened to him. Sport rage, there you had a referee attacked at the ladies' final. Police in Northern England, or this was in the Irish Times this week, today involved in a major manhunt for a suspect they believe shot his ex-girlfriend, killed her partner, and shot a police officer. What's going on there? The first five months of this year, 164 people were killed in Chicago or murdered. But 10,000 Americans died by handgun violence in the four months that the Supreme Court was considering a gun law amendment. 10,000. This one is very close to home. This is a photo of Gary Butcher, who was killed on Friday night in a bar in County Derry. And, of course, this will be all too familiar to you, having lived through that for so many years. All sorts of anger and the consequences that you had to face and endure. Just introduce this to you. In all of Christendom, the most sacred, revered place is the tomb in Jerusalem, which is said to be the burial place of Jesus. And just last year, something extraordinary happened in that at this most sacred place in Christendom, where love thy neighbor as thyself is the essence of Christianity, a row broke out between rival Christian factions. And they ended up beating each other up. Just have a look at this. This was the point where the concept of love thy neighbor went straight out of the window at Jerusalem's Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The violence between the Armenian and Greek Orthodox groups flared in a row over control of the historic building. First, rival worshippers began hurling punches. Then, clergy on both sides waded in with a flurry of right hooks and some hefty kicks to the fellow Christians they now appear to regard as fair game. The fighting went on for about ten minutes, despite the efforts of Israeli police to break up the warring factions. Each side later blamed the other for the unholy scenes of violence. Love thy neighbour as thyself. So, anger, then, our subject tonight, is a leading killer of love, joy, health, happiness, loving relationships, family harmony, success and prosperity. A killer of everything that is good, lovely and fair. It is associated with most illnesses and depression. The hidden cause of many deaths, including suicides, many accidents and all violence. So what is cause for concern is that it is the same anger, just different in degree, that brings about these extreme problems. It's the same lack of control where anything can happen, whether just cruel words that should never be spoken, to dreadful deeds that cannot be reversed. Same anger. The Roman philosopher Seneca, he said it was the most hideous and frenzied of all the emotions. So this is not a new phenomenon. It's been going on for a while. So anger is never healthy. It's never positive. And perhaps surprisingly, the argument that tonight that we're going to look at is that it's never necessary and never justified. So let's see how we get on with that and see if it stands up to scrutiny. While we're not always aware of it, in dealing with anger, we're dealing with a potential killer 
something which easily escalates and can overpower us so that we lose the head. And when the bullet has left the gun, invariably there is no going back. So the challenge for us this evening is to try and make sense of the seeming senseless. And this is how we'll approach it. What is anger? What causes it? And how do we deal with it? The first startling answer about anger is that it is not a true emotion. Because it is not a true emotion, the good news is we are not stuck with it. Anger is in fact a parasite with no independent existence. It can only exist in virtue of something else. And astonishingly, that something else is love. Consider this. Love is the motive force behind all the processes at work in the world to sustain it. It could never be sustained without love. Love is the natural in between. So much so that the ultimate cause of all hostility is also love because hostility springs up when love is hindered or frustrated. We want a thing we love. If we do not get it, we turn hostile. And so the proposition is this, without love, no anger. Let's just try that for a moment together. Can you have a lie without the truth? Can you have the truth without a lie? Yes. yes. Okay, so what's the difference then between truth and a lie? The truth exists independently. The lie can only exist as an aspect of truth. If there's no truth, you can't have the lie. But the truth doesn't need a lie to exist. So this is an example of the difference between that which exists and that which only appears to exist. Okay? Let me just try it again. Can you have two without one? No? No two? Can you have one without two? Yes? Yeah? So, one exists independently, two can only exist in virtue of one. Would that be fair enough? And so it is with anger. It can only exist in virtue of something else. And that something else is love. You can't be angry unless there is some underlying base. And that base, the proposition is, that base is love. That love is the natural in-between. Love exists independently. It's the natural in-between. But anger only has a contingent existence. It has no independent existence. It cannot exist without the underlying element, which is love. A lie is an aspect of truth, just as two is an aspect of one. Anger is an aspect of love. So this raises the question, how can something appear as its own opposite? How could love somehow appear as its opposite? Anger, deadly anger from time to time. So just have a look at this for a moment, see if this helps us. The example is water. Water is a liquid, okay? It can also appear as a gas, and it can also appear as a solid. So it would appear as its own opposite from time to time. But whether it's a liquid, a solid, or a gas, it never is anything else other than water. So here is an example of how something can appear like its own opposite. And what is it that determines the difference between liquid, solid, and gas? 
simply whatever substance it has to be working through. Fundamentally, it's water. Depending on the temperature, it's either a gas or a solid or a liquid. So we need to keep that in mind as we go. And just have a look at this now. Look at love for a moment. This is love, and love under knowledge brings happiness. Love under attachment brings conflict and anger, and love under delusion is evil. Now this is a difficult concept, but the question is whether it's true or not. In other words, it's all love. Depending on the substance it's working through, it manifests as happiness, as anger, and as evil. But none of those exist on their own. They're all aspects or manifestations of love under different circumstances. And so you don't have an independent existence of evil or an independent existence of anger. Without the underlying love, no anger. So why should wanting something I love cause anger? How does it work? We'll just have a look at this for a moment. This is a diagram which reflects the way we meet the world on a day-to-day -day basis. And the way we meet the world on a day-to-day -day basis, we meet the world the way things are. Isn't that right? Everywhere you go, you're faced with situation and how things are. There's a second line there, and that second line is made up of the way I would like them to be. And once that line opens up, it creates this angle, and that's the angle of anger. Now, just for a moment, let's just consider this for a moment. The second line there, the way I would like them to be, who creates that second line? We do? Okay. So, therefore, in creating the second line, we create this gap, which gives rise to anger. And if we create that second line, who or what is making us angry? I know this is hard to take, <laughs> But who is making us angry? Ourselves. Who do we think is making us angry? Everybody else. Now, it's an extraordinary thing. That the way things are, the way I would like them to be, creates this problem for us. So you could define it this way in terms of what we love. It's wanting people and things to go the way I want them to go. Now, the first thing you could do is immediately resign as managing director of the creation and accept things and allow things to be the way they are. Let me ask you another question in, in, in relation to that. Does it matter how far down this second line you go, the way I want them to be, does it change anything on the line of the way things are? So it's completely futile. However, it does have an effect. Who does it affect? It affects us. So here's another interesting look at this problem that the anger is a result based on what we love, and when that love is frustrated, anger arises, and we do that to ourselves, while under the very strong, convincing illusion that it's everybody else, especially my husband, my wife, my children, the government, <laughs> the weather, <laughs> whatever. So the stronger the attachment is, to the way I'd like them to be, the greater the power of the anger. So the more you want things to be the way they are, the greater the power of the anger. So attachment is a really significant aspect of anger and its force.
I remember I was on holiday with a, a group a year or two ago. In fact, I'll never forget this because it was <laughs> it was a significant enough event. We were on a cruise ship. We were in Italy, and there was six of us, and there were only five chairs. And I had to look around, and I spotted a chair, and I got the chair, and I brought it over. Nobody sitting in it. Brought it over. Sat down. A few minutes later, a very large figure approached, stood over me. And this large figure said to me, you took my mother's chair. Now my life is in danger. A minute ago it was just a chair. Now it's my mother's chair. That level of attachment is what determines or drives the force in anger. So the greater the attachment, the greater the anger. So we can justify it, usually justify our anger, if we believe that other people are making us angry. So this belief that others are making me angry is illustrated by this particular man here. This is the terrifying image of Chow. You remember some years ago, he was the South Korean undergraduate of Virginia University. And this is the image he presented to his fellow university students in 2007 as he systematically shot 34 of them dead the biggest mass murder in United States history. And he blamed everyone else for his anger and his actions. Fortunately, he left his testimony for us, so we know what he was thinking, and we know how he justified it. Have a look at this. When the time came, I did it. I had to. You had a hundred billion chances and ways to have avoided today, but you decided to spill my blood. You forced me into a corner and gave me only one option. The decision was yours. Now you have blood on your hands that will never wash off. So what strikes you about that? Is it as we've been saying? Did you count the minute? You, 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 you. Where is he in it? He's a victim. So these are the fatal beliefs then. It's, I have no choice but to get angry. It's not me, it's them. Watch out for this one. It's quite normal to get angry. Anger is not a normal emotion. Never necessary, never justified. It's not natural. The natural in between human beings is love. Anger is not the natural in between. And then, I need to get angry to motivate others. What I thought we would do, we have the boiling point account of modern research into anger. But I just had a look back at what the sages have been saying about it over the millennia. The consequences for them were as follows. Anger obliterates the best part of our brain, which is the ability to judge between right and wrong, and the consequences of our actions. That's the Dalai Lama. Holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else. You're the one who gets burned. You want something which you cannot have. You are envious and cannot attain your ambitions, and so you quarrel and fight. St. Paul. This is Patanjali. The fruit of negative feelings is endless ignorance and suffering. So you have these negative emotions. Endless ignorance and suffering is their fruit. Not for the other person that you would like to have them, for us. So let's have a look at the remedies. How we're going to deal with this killer. And in dealing with the remedy, there are three methods three ways that we might approach the, the problem. 
And the first of these is to vent it. Let it off. Let off the steam, okay? If you vent it, are you practicing it or not practicing it? If you let loose. If you give vent to your anger, are you practicing anger or not? You're practicing it, are you? Okay, if you practice something, do you strengthen it or weaken it? So giving vent to it means that you're practicing it, and practicing it strengthens it. That's the the logic of the situation. So you you wouldn't want to use that as a remedy of being at much use. What about repress and not give vent to it? Anything that is suppressed continues to bubble away onto the surface, so there can be no genuine peace or happiness or peace of mind there. And in the case of repressed anger, it can do terrible damage. It's hard to know just what damage it does, but managing and controlling anger does not free us of it. Regardless of how many times we count to ten and postpone it, we don't really go free of it while we're suppressing it. We're still suffering its power. And then there is a third alternative to dissolve it. How does that sound? Sound good? That would be the way to do it. Now, to dissolve it then, you'd have to look at how you're going to do that. How could you dissolve the anger? And there are three ways to do that. The first way is to use reason. Why be unhappy about something if it can be remedied? This is reason now. And what's the use of being unhappy about something if it cannot be remedied? That's all very nice. Well, I have another one here for reason for you. Be not angry that you cannot make others as you wish them to be, since you cannot make yourself as you wish to be. Thomas Akempis. Now, provided there's enough time and space and memory, this is an excellent method. But it may not always be the case, because anger is very fast. And it may be too quick, even for the mighty reason to overcome it. So another way is to develop patience. No evil like hatred, and no fortitude like patience. Hatred the poison, patience the medicine. The only factor that can give you refuge from the destructive effects of anger is practice of tolerance and patience. That's the Dalai Lama. So the difficult with that is tolerance and patience, interestingly enough, are not weakness, but the restraint that comes from a strong, disciplined mind. Now, tolerance and patience are fine. However, again, when the storm comes, tolerance and patience may be swept away. When you are truly patient and tolerant, then forgiveness comes naturally. Now, in the the philosophy school, established practices such as meditation would be our greatest ally here in developing a strong and disciplined mind. And that's certainly available to students in the school. Again, may not be just available when you really need it. And if the old meditation practice hasn't been going that well, who knows? So, the next way to look at this as means of dealing with the problem is this question of wisdom. Through wisdom, the true nature of our anger is understood. In other words, you understand what the sort of things we've been speaking about this evening. That it is not others' fault, that I am making myself angry, that it is not a true emotion, that it arises when my love is frustrated. All those things can come to mind. And others are not responsible. Wisdom frees us from the anger of wanting people and things to go the way I want them to go. That's that diagram we were looking at. 
When you live in complete acceptance of what is, that's the end of all drama in your life. Nobody can have an argument with you, no matter how hard they try. This has got to be good news. When you live in complete acceptance of what is. I remember when I was married early on, and I was a really ardent student of the philosophy school, I had very good ideas of how the ideal wife should behave. <laughs> now, these were all very good ideas. Really sensible, useful, worthwhile ideas. And they would have added to the peace in the household and so on. However, there was a difficulty. What was the difficulty? <laughs> my, my wife didn't know all about these ideas, wasn't the least bit concerned about them. What was the consequence of that? Here I am with all these wonderful ideas. Here's my good wife. Doesn't know anything about them. What was the consequence? Frustration, confrontation, trouble. And I remember one day, probably as a result of some philosophical instruction or like that, I remember I was looking at her and I decided the way she is is the way she is. And I stopped with my very worthwhile <laughs> demands or requirements. What do you think happened? What do you think happened? She didn't change a bit. <laughs> she did the same. <laughs> but something happened. The interesting thing was that peace broke out. This is an interesting, simple thing like that. It was peace. Now, here's the interesting thing. Things weren't the way I wanted them to be. They weren't the way I would have liked them to be. They would have been better if some of these things had put in place. But what price peace? You battle your way through life, probably busting up at some stage and it can't be sustained. But a simple thing like that, simple insight like that, and the prize is peace. So, when you live in complete acceptance of what is, that's the end of all drama in your life. Nobody can have an argument with you, no matter how hard they try. Now, just have a look at this diagram here. This is a diagram of a row. Okay. It starts off really very simply. It starts off as a scrap. Simple stimulus comes. Somebody says something or does something simple. And there is a response. And then this happens. As a result of that response, there's a bigger response. And a bigger response. And so on. And the energy drives it until the scrap turns into world war. Now, what would have prevented that happening? Where was the battle lost on that diagram? You recognize the diagram, first of all, as a straightforward. Yeah. Where was the battle lost? The first response. What would have happened if there was no response to that stimulus. It wouldn't have gone any further. It's these responses that give the energy that keeps the thing going and causes the escalation. If it was possible not to respond when the stimulus comes, and when it's small, when it gets to the other end there, you've said things about our mother-in-law and the relations and so on. It's too low. But if you dealt with it low down here, what would the consequence be? No energy, no sustenance, and the whole thing would just die at that point. Now, why do we not do that? Or what would you have to do or know to be able to do that? Just consider for a moment what happens when the stimulus comes? What responds? Keep going. 
the egoic self, okay. Something happens when that stimulus comes. And in order not to respond, what would you have to do or what would you have to be? Just consider that for a moment. Except for the way it is. And in order to do that, what would you have to be? Wise. Wise? Blind. Deaf. <laughs> Deaf? <laughs> See, I'm on a hiding of nowhere here. What would you have to be? An observer? Go on, just stick with it for a moment. There's something you'd have to be in order not to respond to the stimulus. Because usually what happens is these responses or these stimuli are very habitual. Like, for example, all the ladies know exactly where to hit the man in order to get them, okay? I'm not sure if it's the other way around is, is good, but the ladies are very good at it. So what would you have to be at that, that first step there? Tolerant. Tolerant. And to be tolerant, you'd have to be at peace with yourself. And in order to be at peace with yourself, you'd have to be... Do you give up? <laughs> in order to do that, the difference here is that this response is usually mechanical, habitual. The arrow comes in, gets you wherever it gets you, you respond, and that mechanical, habitual response starts the process, and it's then out of your hands. The key thing to be there, you'd have to be awake enough or conscious enough to see, aware it, that's the word. See it coming. It starts off somewhere down around your ankle, right? And starts to come up through you. If you could catch it around about the knees, you could head off that whole escalation there. Just not to respond, give it no energy, and it cannot go any further just to be awake, just to feel your feet on the ground, just to be present. Feel it coming, feel the response rising, and if it doesn't utter, no escalation. Okay, that's the war. When you accept what is, every moment is the best, and that is enlightenment. Can you believe it's that simple? When you accept what is, Every moment is the best, and that is enlightenment. As simple as that. There's something in us that wants to change, especially everybody else. <laughs> we know what's wrong with everybody else. And just like my example with my poor wife, if I could just fix everybody else, then I would be happy and everyone would be happy. The problem with it is, you can't change anyone. I know how this idea is so strong that we can change people. You can't change anyone. Except one person you can change. Yourself. When you live in complete acceptance of what is, that's the end of all drama in your life. Nobody can have an argument with you, no matter how hard they try. You are in your own power, not somebody else's. When you accept what is, every moment is the best. That's enlightenment. So the notion of wanting to change everyone and everything to make things better is not enlightenment. It's ignorance. Posing as enlightenment. And causing havoc in its trail.
there's a couple of practical things that we could look at. You could ask yourself, what desire is being frustrated now? That'll show up the way I'd like things to be. Can I change the way I feel about this? You can always change the way you feel about it. What's the best of me that I can give to this situation? In which case, you give the best to it rather than the worst. What am I trying to do? Who is suffering first and most? We're the ones who are suffering there. And how long is my anger going to last? There is a consideration now that not responding in the habitual mechanical way does not reinforce the anger profile. In fact, it dissolves it. Okay? And in order to do that, you just have to be awake not to respond in the habitual mechanical way and give energy to that simple stimulus. Okay? So, in this way, we do what Patanjali said we should do, which is to cultivate the opposite. And there's a little clip here showing you how miraculous that can be. Have a look at this. In 79, I think you would have been about 22, you went to a radio debate to the Reverend Wade Watts, Watts. who uh, was the state leader of the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, Mm -hmm. who worked with Martin Luther King. And when you got to this debate, he held out his hand for you to shake. Yes, he did. Did you hesitate? I, I, he caught me off guard. See, I'm expecting this black militant to come in with a great big afro this big and an and a African dashiki on with bones hanging around it and a button on that says, I hate honkies and death to crackers, you know, all that stuff. And I figured he'd have on you a black... You seriously thought that? Yeah, that's what I thought. And I thought he'd come in there carrying a boom box, blaring out the theme from Shaft. I figured he'd, he'd, uh, he'd flash the switchblade at me and go, black is beautiful, honky. I'm going to kill all you white devils, you know. And that's what I thought I was going to see. And so when the door opened, opened up and in came Reverend Wade Watts and he's wearing a suit and a tie and he's carrying a Bible and he walks up and he puts his hand out to me and he goes, hello there Mr. Clare, I'm Reverend Wade Watts, I just want to tell you I love you and Jesus loves you and I mean I'm shocked, you know, and then he puts his hand out and I'm shaking his hand without thinking because this wasn't what I was expecting. Then I realized I just broke a clan rule and I jerked my hand back, you know, and I started looking at my hand, which he saw that and that met, was met as an insult. The clan rule book says the physical touch of a non-white is pollution. And I thought, I just shook hands with a black person, and he sees me looking at my hand. He goes, don't worry, Johnny, it don't come off. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you know, I start calling him names. I go, you no good, sorry, bleep, 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 you mother this, you this, you that. And he looked at me, he goes, God bless you, Johnny. He says, I, I, you can't do enough to me to make me hate you. I'm going to love you, and I'm going to pray for you whether you like it or not. And I didn't know how to deal with that. I had never had that happen to me before. A few years later, you burnt down his church, didn't you? Set fire to his church. See, what happened was we started off going by his house, calling him names. We got no response. Threw trash all over his lawn, got no response. Uh, We uh, showed up with our sheets and hoods and stood out there in his yard. Said, get on out here, boy. We got something for you. And he comes outside and he goes, boys, Halloween's four more months away. I got no trick-or-treat in here for you. Come back in October. And he goes back in the house. That's a bright man. Yeah. and, And, I mean, I didn't know how to deal with this. And so the clan goes, you got any more bright ideas? I said, I don't know. I said, I'll tell you what we'll do. So we burned a cross across the street from his house. He came outside and asked us if we needed hot dogs and marshmallows for our barbecue, you know. So finally, I said, I'm tired of messing with him, and we set fire to his church. And they put the fire out before the church was destroyed. And I remember I called him up.
up and disguised my voice and I said, hey boy, you better be afraid. We're coming to get you, boy. You don't know who we are, but we know who you are. And he goes, hello, Johnny. <laughs> and all that stuff. He goes, a man like you takes the time to call me. I'm so honored. And all that stuff. He goes, let me do something to you. He goes, dear Lord, please forgive Johnny for being so stupid. He doesn't mean to be so honored. He's a good boy trying to get out somewhere. In there. And I hung up the phone on him. I said, how dare him. And so the funniest thing that happened with him, though, is uh, I didn't know what to do. And I was at my ropes in. And one day we, we was watching him, and he went into a restaurant. So we got a bunch of us together and about 30 of us went in there and surrounded him and he had this chicken there on the table at the restaurant and I walked up and I said hey boy this restaurant's for white people only we don't want you here I said so I'm going to make you a promise I said I promise you we're going to do the same thing to you that you do to that chicken so you think real hard before you touch that chicken so he looked at me and looked at the clan then he picked up the chicken and he kissed it and, and when he kissed the chicken the whole restaurant acted just like y'all did they all start laughing you know and everything and, and I looked up, and even the clan was laughing. <laughs> you got to admit, that was funny. I said, every one of you outside, I'm outside, and they're doubled over laughing. I'm going, you guys are going to get suspended and lose your robe for two weeks. I said, I'm getting tired of this. And I'm hollering at them and yelling. They're laughing. I heard a horn honking, and Reverend Watson driving off going, bye, Johnny. You know, and stuff. And, and that's how he chose. That's how one old black, we never bothered him again. And that's how one old black man defeated the entire Ku Klux Klan. Because he used this instead of brawn. And he used this, too, a very brave yeah. Interesting story, isn't it? Couldn't get a better illustration than that, could you? This had a really conversion effect on this head of the Ku Klux Klan, and he ended up helping with the work of the Reverend Watson, actually, instead of trying to destroy it, actually, to support it. Huge triumph of love over hate. So in order to accept what is, to escape the mechanical, it is essential that we wake up, are fully present. Connection with the feet on the ground, or indeed any of the senses, will anchor us in the present. And this present, combined with the recitation of any statement of truth, any succinct statement of truth, has the capacity to dissolve the ignorance, and by dissolve the ignorance, dissolve the anger. Patanjali says the fruit of negative feelings is endless ignorance and suffering. That will do it. I brought a list with me today of succinct ones. I'll leave it here for you. We can photocopy it. You find one on it that you like, and that should be your refuge any time there is an anger attack. Just being present, feet on the ground will do that. Recitation of the simple statement to turn the mind to truth dissolves the anger. The interesting thing about that is it works instantaneously. It doesn't work through a process of thinking. It connects immediately with that in us which knows what's true and therefore it's fast enough to deal with anger, which can be very fast and sometimes too fast for the other methods of dealing with it. So, present and a recitation of a mantra-like statement which is designed to reflect the truth of what we've been speaking this evening. The one caveat in all of this is that it would be advisable to start with the smaller irritations rather than wait for the world war <laughs> to break out. Start with the small things. And the handout this evening will help you, give you something that you can actually work with. Now, just moving on from that, I had to put this picture in coming to Jerry because you have in your midst here a man who has served and indeed 
given everything in the course of peace, risked everything. And it's an extraordinary to have such a man in your midst. I don't know how he is locally. Sometimes prophets are without honor in their own country. But he is regarded as being the man who really took the risk, who really went out on a limb, who went to the other side, brought them in from the anger and violence into the political thing, and the whole situation has been transformed. And he's one of your own. And not surprisingly, he's a Nobel Peace Prize winner. A man acknowledged by the world. Absolutely extraordinary. He is certainly loved, because those of us who lived in the South suffered not as much as you did, but suffered the consequences of what was going on up here. And so John Hume was seen as an extraordinary catalyst in changing the anger and violence. So we have choice. And the choice is we can either accept the way things are or rebel. The difference between that choice that we make is the difference between heaven and hell. And heaven and hell associated with either happiness that comes from love or the suffering that comes inevitably from negative feelings, negative responses, especially including anger. So, when you are fully present and people around you manifest unconscious behavior, you won't feel the need to react to it so you don't give it any reality. Your peace is so vast and deep that anything that is not peace disappears into it, as if it never existed. You teach through being, through demonstrating the peace of God. You become the light of the world, an emanation of pure consciousness, and so you eliminate suffering at the level of cause. You eliminate unconsciousness from the world. The stimulus comes, there is no response, it dies. You eliminate unconsciousness from the world. So love is the natural in-between. Without that love, or if the love is forgotten, then it's covered over and you can get anger. So just consider this. Anger, in conclusion, anger is a philosophical problem and it is amenable to treatment, not some independent force over which we have no control. We have choice. We cannot change events, but we are free to change how we respond to them. Can't change what's coming down the track, but you're absolutely free in your response to them. And the simple choice, in some ways, the only choice we have is either acceptance or rebellion. In acceptance, not my will, but thine be done. We choose heaven. Love, joy, health, happiness, inner serenity and contentment. All of this is the miracle of surrender. Not my will, but thine be done. The way things are, rather than my way. In rebellion, my will, not thine be done, we choose hell and all the suffering, sickness, stress, struggle, unhappiness, 
restlessness and discontent and poor health that anger brings. Anger is never necessary. It's not a true emotion. It's never justified. Love is a natural in-between. Anger is the killer of the life within us while we are alive. But perhaps the best thing to do is we'll stop, we'll have a cup of tea, and then we can come back. And if I've said anything to make you really angry, we'll see if we can deal with that. Okay, would that be all right? Okay, why don't we do that? Thank you. So there you are. Now the fun begins because we can look at this topic and the kind of radical things that we've been saying about it and see if we can broaden or deepen our understanding of it through your experiences and through your questions and so on. So it's over to you. Good man. Hello. At the moment I'm unemployed. I have recently left course early. I left a PGC course early. <coughs> And according to the line, I should be happy where I am. And the downward line is the way I would like things to be. But I can't stay where I am. In order to be happy, I'll have to move on to something else. What I'm saying is, should I give up ambition because it will make me angry? Okay, very good question. Now, to accept the way things are, that is an instantaneous response to wherever you find yourself in any given moment. It doesn't mean that you don't work from there to change your situation. It's not, accepting what you are is not about being apathetic. It's about acceptance that this is the way things are and then you move on from that. And as that unfolds, you accept it. If it turns out the way you like it, that's great. If it doesn't, it's still great. It doesn't mean you do nothing. But however it unfolds, so be it. And the curious thing about that is that it can take the discontent or the frustration out of the picture and improve your chances for employment. <laughs> so don't misconstrue that. It's acceptance, but it doesn't mean you do nothing. You have to get about your business and form a plan and take your studies and do whatever you have to do and get on about it. But at every stage, it's so be it. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for giving a very nice lecture on this time. I got confused there. You said to accept the things as they are in the world and do not get angry. Do we accept unfairness, injustice, and downright evil like Holocaust, or do we fight against it? We fight to be fight with love. Love did not get Dalai Lama anywhere, but an exile from his own country. Okay. That's the dilemma. Okay. That's the dilemma or the Dalai Lama. <laughs> okay. Now, the interesting thing, the proposition is this. The proposition is that anger is not a true emotion that exists on its own. It always is some kind of layer over the underlying cause, and the underlying cause we said was love. Okay. So you could say that you're angry at injustice. Okay, you could say that. But what do you love? 
You love justice. And the question always rises, if you don't understand what we're saying here, is that you work from the injustice rather than the love of justice. You can deal with it, but you can deal with it from the love of justice rather than from anger. So it doesn't mean you don't strive to make a better world or whatever, but you can do that from love. Just as a matter of interest, what would you think is the more potent force? Love or anger? Love. But for some reason or other, because we miss the fact that the anger is really based on the real force, which is love, we think that anger will do better than love. So, you can look at the world and want to change it, but reflect on the true emotion. Love is the natural in-between. Let's test the proposition. Think of some of the other things that make you angry. Anything that makes you angry now. We'll just see how it stands up. I mean, keep that question in mind there. Injustice would make me angry. Such as? <coughs> Palestine, an example. Palestinian people in their own country. The war was stand by and allowed it to happen. Nothing's really been done only by a few people. Sure. That would make me angry, yeah. What's your name? Art. Now, what does Art love? He loves justice. If you didn't love justice, you wouldn't be bothered about injustice. So it's just useful to see that. You can get very, very worked up about things, but just to see what the base is. The base is that you love justice and you don't like to see injustice. But the root of it, the cause of it, the drive of it is love. Anger wouldn't arise unless you loved justice. Again, the Bible would have spoke about righteous anger. Again, how would you feel on that? Which they would, would be, I think, would be saying that anger that was based on righteousness and on justice yeah. was justifiable. Yeah. Bit nervous about that. Smiting and smoting <laughs> all over the place. Bit nervous about it. There is such a thing now that parents sometimes have to have recourse to, which is acting angry. Now, acting angry means you don't lose the head. You know what you're doing and you are acting angry. And there may be a place for that. But fundamentally, the thing that faces us as Christians, as human beings, is the fundamental, natural in-between is love. And it's the base on which we can proceed naturally. Anger is a parasite and you would be careful not to be driven by anger rather than by love. The likelihood is that love will prevail. Much better off to be coming from love. Behavior of the banks over the last number of years in lending money out and also the developers building houses that weren't required, hotels, etc. Sure. What do you love? I was thinking you'd ask me that question before. <laughs> <laughs> trying to think. Yeah, well, you, love, you love prudence. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you love honesty, you love efficiency, all of those qualities. That's what we love. And it's just good to acknowledge that the anger does not exist in any vacuum. It is no independent existence. And you can stick with what you love, and you can be just as effective from that as you can from being angry. As a nation, any suggestions of how we move through this, or resolve the anger that's in Ireland? Yeah. 
that's a very, very good question. There's an interesting thing about enlightenment. <clears throat> enlightenment is not a mass movement. There is a view that our society, led by our respective governments, is going somewhere. And we just have to hang on, and they will get us there. It's always based on the new budget, and the new figures, and so on and so forth. But the truth of the matter is that society tends to go where society always goes, which is round in circles. Sometimes the cycles are up, sometimes the cycles are down. But that's the way it goes. By contrast, individual souls, at any point in that cycle, sometimes at the very worst end of the cycle, individual souls have raised up, looked back, found themselves, and transcended whatever society is in. So it's an individual rather than a mass movement. And so the question for us is, how can I, as an individual, raise up? And of course, if an individual changes, what happens if an individual changes? Take, for example, in your house. If you change, one man, if you change, is your household changed? Is the street on which your household is, is that changed? Is the city in which that street is, is that changed? And is the nation changed? And the world, yeah. The very strong idea is that if I could just change everybody else, it's called the orange box philosophy, right? You get up in your orange box and you change everybody else, the world would be okay. The truth of the matter is, you can only change yourself. But in changing ourselves, the world is changed. It might appear like a little, but change is change. You also mentioned awareness as key to dissolving anger. Yeah. Most of us go through life driven by our systems, our individual systems, right? Our habitual, mechanical way of responding to, to the world. These systems are deeply ingrained and they operate very often without us even being aware of it. And the whole thrust of any philosophy worth its salt is to be able to identify or allow us to see this system and to transcend it. And the key to that is just waking up. Recognizing that we do behave habitually and mechanically and that there is a possibility to transcend that and wake up. And you move from habitual to conscious. And that just means that you are in your own power, rather the power of the system. And you don't say what you always said. You don't do what you always do. The mechanical, unthinking, habitual response. Extraordinarily strong. And it carries with it a tag that I'm right. That's what it comes with. The tag is that everybody sees the world the way I see it. And my view on the world is the right view. It's not the case at all. So a mechanical, habitual... You were going nowhere with that. Was it Einstein who said that a definition of insanity was to think that you get a different result by doing the same things. 
keep doing what you do, keep doing what you do, and wonder why things don't change. It's a howl, isn't it? And in some cases, there are people who have become habitually angry, whose first recourse is anger, which is unfortunate. Funnily enough, it's love that brings down the defences. Anger puts them up. You don't have to be angry to be effective. Much more important to be awake, so that when a child comes to you, you're in your correct role, your mother or father, not businessman or husband. You're just there, you're awake, in the right mode, and then knowledge arises in that, and you deal with the situation appropriately. Anger doesn't know anything about that. I think there are whole sessions in, in philosophy classes about that playing the appropriate role. If husband comes home and mother opens the door, what way is husband spoken to? The way mother has been speaking to the children all day. Wipe your feet before you come in here, or whatever it is. <laughs> so important to be awake, to be in the right role, and the knowledge as to how to operate rises in them. Just by being awake, by being present. We seem to be able to function without waking up. The system operates. The old system operates. <laughs> Doing the same things and expecting a different result? Insanity. <laughs> Einstein! We have a connection between anger and depression. What type of anger would you tie that to? Would it be a stored anger or what would cause the depression or you said it can affect the heart and your health yeah, overall? Things, yeah. Now, I didn't say that. That was the research document yeah. from the UK Mental Health Association. Yeah. So their research was, the reason I quoted that was because it's modern, it's recent and it is a very detailed document and they were their conclusions. Okay. Um, we also looked at what the sages had to say from the past, and they're not that far apart. And your own opinion, would you say that depression arises from stored anger? I mean, there's two types of depression. There's yes, the there is. indulgence depression. But one of the things that you can say about depression is this, is that when your attention turns in, into yourself, that is the basis of perhaps depression help. Mm -hmm. And it can, your attention can go in, you become self-absorbed, and it can happen and you can be brought out, and it can happen and you can be brought out. And you've got to be very careful that one day your attention goes in and you can't get it out. You can no longer reach the person. Then it becomes really, really serious. Have you got a particular incidence of this in your family somewhere? Isn't it? Not particularly, no, no but we've uh, spoken about stored anger. You know, if you deal with young people, sometimes who are angry every day and they don't really know what they're angry about. Yeah. And a lot of the time it relates back to maybe their childhood. Yes. And they're angry with their parents, they're angry with their employer. I'm just wondering where you... As Get their attention out. Get your attention out. Yeah. Out. Out. But do you think it is a stored anger? from the past. You mean that it's locked away somewhere? Yes. Anger? Yes. I don't know. But anger, if there is anger, it's unnatural 
and it should be addressed. And if it's in young people, get their attention out to doing something, whatever their attention is out, and it will help them deal with the anger and any prospect of depression as well. The Freudian idea that there is something locked away that happened to us in our past that is causing me to behave the way I do, a little bit nervous about that. Much better off to deal with the behavior. Much better off to deal with the behavior. They go rooting around for some hidden locked away cause that may be manifesting as anger or repression or depression. Much better off to deal with what you have, behavior. And that involves tension, tension out. Incidentally, just as a matter of interest, depression equals tamas, right? The way you overcome tamas is rajas, activity, attention out. And even for ourselves, if you find yourself, your attention going in and going in and going in, the thing to do is get your attention out. Out to what? To whatever or whoever is in front of you in any given moment. Attention out. If you're interested in the will of God, it's whatever is in front of you in this moment, right now. Don't go looking for things to attend to. Whatever's in front of you, now. Peace is available now. Interestingly enough, enlightenment is available now. It's not at the end of the next term. You can sometimes think someone somewhere is going to ask the killer question. We get the killer answer. Stuart will come up with the answer and we'll all be enlightened. It just postpones it forever. Truth is now. Peace is now. Enlightenment is now. The problem is we're usually somewhere else looking for... How far do you give up on your dreams or how far do you resign yourself to the circumstances to be accepting of them? To the extent that it almost seems as though you're suffering... Well, wherever you are is where you are, and you accept that. It's natural for a human being to set goals. That's natural. It's the most natural thing in the world. I am going to go on a holiday, or I'm going to do this. That's natural. What is unnatural, what's a step too far, is to require that the goal and the plan work out the way I want them to work out. So set the goals. Whatever happens, so be it. If necessary, set another one. Whatever happens, so be it. It's not a question of doing nothing. It's a question of proceeding on the basis of how things are. Was there, is there was another question there, was there? So I suppose there's always two sides to one argument. I guess what I'm saying, but you could you could draw from a larger scale also one person or one group of people, um, they're fighting for one thing that they, it could be justice from their point Perspective, of view. Perspective, yeah, right. Um, but for another point of view, it would be injustice. So do you surrender or do you give up the battle? Or if you really are in love with the injustice, how do you make the other group of people or how do you make the other person? Right. Well, it's not the injustice that you love. Injustice very often makes you angry. What you really love is justice. And love is the natural in-between even between mothers and daughters. <laughs> it's love as a natural in between. And there's an interesting thing I'd like to draw for you, but in any transaction, you've got A and B, like mother-daughter, argument going on. 
And the idea is that A would like to change B, and B would like to change A. And that's where the argument is, is really locked. But there's a very interesting consideration is that if you're A and you change, then the transaction is changed. And you always have that option. So you can manage those situations not by trying to change the other person or trying to fight your corner or get them to agree with your point of view, but by you changing. You can always change that situation. And when you change, the transaction is changed. And when the transaction is changed, peace is possible. The idea is the other person would only get it. All would be well. Just try it. It's feet on the ground. Tension out. Recite your aphorism, whatever one you have. See what happens. You suggest that there's a sort of eternal truth which consists of love. But surely it could be argued that it's equally true that anger are also eternal truths in the sense that it's possible to imagine right now that someone is suffering and it's possible to imagine right now that, well, there certainly are wars in the continuous present and possibly even the continuous past. I mean, it could be suggested then that anger isn't a dependency of love, but is ensnared with it and entwined with it. I have never seen love in which a component of anger was not at some time present. It may not have been continuously present, but it was periodically present. Well, if it is periodically present, then the continuum is the love. When you start an interest in philosophy, they're the kinds of ideas that are kind of ideas that you've got to decide. Either love is the natural in between, or anger is the natural in between. It can take you a long time to study that. Either there is eternal truth, or there are eternal opinions. Either objective truth exists, or my truth exists. That is the business of philosophy, to discover those. Sometimes it can take you a lifetime, sometimes you can get it like that. But that's, the, that's what you've got to make up your mind about. Where does the truth lie? The school which offers a system of access to the wisdom of the ages. That's what the school, the school doesn't have any philosophy of its own. It merely offers a system whereby the great teachers and the great teachings can be accessed. Has come down firmly on the view that objective truth does exist and its manifestation is knowledge, consciousness <coughs> and bliss. And that knowledge is the knowledge of the unity of everything, and therefore that love is the natural in-between. That's where the school stands based on the teachings of the ages. And that's what we've got to make up our minds about. Are you actually in a philosophy class, are you? Are you attending a philosophy class? Okay, well if you were in a philosophy class, or in the school in any way, that's really the direction. It's a big question, whether it's love, or suffering? Big question. And how you'll know when you've got the answer is, you'll be at peace. <laughs> the question will have been resolved. My question is, if for whatever reason someone's behavior has made you angry, is it not better to tell them that you were angry with them because? Should you do nothing? Should you not talk to them and tell them? Well, it may be appropriate to tell them that what they've done has made you angry. But you don't have to 
be angry. Usually the way these conversations go, you start off with some kind of stimulus over here. There's a stimulus, and it goes over here, and there is a response. So this is the stimulus over here. You say something that makes the other person angry, and there's a response here. And what can happen easily is that the response comes back like that, creates another stimulus like that, another one like that, and before you know where you are, you're in flames. What's going on here is usually the response is an attempt to punish the other person. You really want to get at them, punish them. So the proposition is that if the stimulus comes and there's no response, what happens to the argument? Stops. Stops. The energy for this comes from the response, the various responses. And there are many, many, many occasions when it's just appropriate, useful, and wise just not to respond. I'd just like to put this rider in that you don't use your non-response like a weapon on the basis that it doesn't matter what you say, I'm not going to say anything. Bang! You don't do that. <laughs> it's just not responding. You just let it pass right through you and carry on. There's no energy then, and it's much easier to deal with things here than here. Anger starts somewhere around your ankles and comes up this way. Now, if you can get it around about the knees, <laughs> you're in good. But if it gets through the heart and into the head, you're in big trouble. The idea is to deal with it while it's small. And you deal with it early on. You just need to be awake to do that. If somebody annoys you, or says something to annoy you, says something offensive, if it's possible to allow the stimulus to pass and then deal with the situation. You may have to say, look, that was very hurtful. But you don't have to be angry. I've heard it said that the one way of dealing with anger would be to own the feeling and not project it on the other and therefore deal with the anger by saying, well, I feel like this now yes. because of what's going on. Oh, great. Better Absolutely. Yeah. That's fine. If you own it, you have to be awake. This diagram here is about a mechanical situation. Now, the ladies are very good at this. The ladies know where all the men's hotspots are. They just intuitively know it. They know what to say to get you every time. And they're so good at it. But it's a mechanical situation. They say what they say, you do what you do, and up you go. This response is mechanical. That's just you doing your thing. Allowing it to go through or owning it, owning the feeling, is conscious. That requires you to be awake to do that. It's not a mechanical response. You hear the stimulus coming, you see the anger rising, you recognize it as the habitual response, and you don't respond. That requires you to be awake, to be present, to be conscious. Consciousness versus habit 
consciousness will always, always win. Funnily enough, the idea is that the habitual win, that if I really say this quick enough, fast enough, and hard enough, I'll sort them out. <laughs> 2,000 years ago, Jesus offered an alternative situation. Yeah, we're a bit slow to learn. <laughs> is it true to say from your talk that there is no situation or no set of circumstances in which any form of anger would be justified? The simple answer is yes. But we should not take that to mean that you do nothing. The wise, enlightened view is that love is the natural in-between. There is a view in society that nothing gets done unless I get angry. The suggestion is that you look beyond the anger and find the real source. The real source, the natural in-between is love. If you can act from that, would it not be as effective, more effective, less damaging? If you want to think about what's in the news at the minute about that family in Kerry, about the, the man and his son who were murdered, mm. it would be very hard to put that into action for that family who were left. Mm. I don't know how you'd find love there. Yes, I know. And then you go to the man and his daughter in the north of Ireland when his daughter was killed. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. And in that situation, the way it touched everyone's hearts. Yes. He was coming from love rather than anger he there. Was, yeah. Was. It's an extraordinary, has the power to convert. Somehow or other we think that anger will change things. But the extraordinary thing is the power yes. of the love response. Well, anger, I mean, maybe is not the right word to use for the reaction of the family to this awful atrocity. But I don't know how you'd find love in it. What you love is the respect for human life. What you love is you love your neighbor as yourself. That's where the love is. Mm. The frustration of that love gives rise to anger. Yeah. The difficulty that you are expressing there, the great Christian commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, for most of us, to understand the great Christian commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, you need to have some idea of what that means and what self means. To try and do Christianity at the level of form, which is our physical bodies and our personalities and so on, very difficult to do Christianity at that level. The enlightened view is that that self, which is my essential bit is the same self in everyone else. And to love your neighbor as yourself at that level gets past the form and the very often the, the difficulty and the, the inexplicable and the tragedy and so on and so forth. So that's what's needed. And that's what the great saints and the great sages have done. They get past the form to that which is the same, and is possible then to unite with that, whereas at the f form level, it's separation. Anger will separate, love unites. 
very difficult to give that in a short way, but that's the general thrust of it. But the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Good. My question related back to earlier and your diagram there, right, when you spoke of if you don't respond to someone who's angry. If you're angry or upset about something and you say it to somebody else, not necessarily very angry, but just on the lowest level, right? and they ignore you or continue to ignore you, that yes. can be very frustrating. Yes. How do you think you should deal with that? Well, in those situations, there are always three choices. And the choices we have, the same three choices all the time. The first choice is that you would try and change the situation. The second, if that can't work, is you have a choice to get away from the situation. And if you can't change it and you can't get away from it, the third one is to accept it. Accept what you believe is not true or accept that... Accept the situation. Accept the situation, yeah. Even if you don't agree? It may, and it may be a, an ongoing situation. It may be very difficult. But it's the acceptance, the, the magic in acceptance whether it's illness or the acceptance is where the healing is and the peace, yes. For some people, anger can be a fantastic tool that they use to get their way. They earn a reputation for having an anger problem and they can use it to their advantage to maintain control perhaps or that have compromises made around them in order to keep the peace. Sure. So, you know, it's not always the best to make compromises for a person because they have a particular reputation. Certainly. It's done, it's done across all walks of life and compromises are made or people are left their own to their own devices because they have a reputation. So they can use it as a tool to their benefit. Right. How do you deal with that sort of situation? is it implicit in what you're saying is the person who is left alone because they are angry, is that, is that, do I get that right? Well, perhaps they use the anger. They use the anger, okay. Oh, sorry, use the reputation that they have. Uh, yeah, and the reputation is based on being angry. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you are. There's a, a kind of implicit understanding in that, that that person who is angry and using that reputation is somehow content, happy, satisfied with themselves. It is impossible for someone to be angry and be content. They are suffering from their profile. And they're making everyone around them suffer as well. There's an extraordinary thing about this. I have a friend who is a perfectionist. Now, God help us perfectionists. They want everything to be perfect. And he has a real problem with anger. So they're always angry. Perfectionists are always angry because nothing is ever perfect enough for them. Always angry. But his particular problem is interesting. He gets angry in his dreams. <laughs> he is convinced that he has a greater possibility of having a heart attack at night because he gets so angry and he doesn't have the possibility of controlling it or whatever that he has when he's awake. But he is concerned about this. It doesn't make him happy. <laughs> and it doesn't make the people around them happy. For some people, when you're dealing with them with kid gloves all the time, don't tell me they're happy. They're unhappy. It's terrible. For some people, the way they relate to the world is by being angry all the time. 
But it flies in the face of everything we've been saying this evening. Thank you. I'd like you to imagine that you would be a therapist and that one day you opened your door and Tatum O'Neill was your client and she was married to John McEnroe. But he needs a higher vibration or an aggressive energy to rise within him to perform because you could say that he would be warrior element within him. And I would like you to summarize what would be your advice to someone like Tetum O'Neill that may have a quieter or softer vibration living with somebody that needs to communicate and express through this aggression. (laughs) 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 Well, I would invite her to come home and live with me for a little while. Yeah. In order for that to work, she would have to accept that. And perhaps through acceptance, she might bring about, she might bring about the changes in the behavior. What is certain is that if she resists it, they will escalate. It's certain. And the prospects for the relationship are inversely declined. There's two things that I'd like you to expand on, if you would, please. One was when you said that anger wasn't a true emotion. Yes. That it was parasitic. Yes. And the other idea that you talked about was the most effective way of dealing with anger was to dissolve it. Yes. Could you expand on those two points, please? Well, I'll try. Thank you. Yes. I'm going to just, if I may, give an example that's easier for us to understand, and then perhaps I'll come back to the parasitic example. I just ask you this question. Is it possible to have a lie without the truth? Just consider that now for a moment. Can you have a lie without the truth? No. Are you happy with that? Is it possible to have the truth without a lie? What's the difference between truth and lie? The truth is is real, did somebody say? What about the lie? It's untrue. Yes, if it can't exist without the truth, is the truth dependent or independent? And is the lie? It's dependent. Okay. Now, it's the same argument. You've got to find out what exists. Love is the natural in-between. Love exists. And on the basis of that love, the frustration of that love, anger arises. And so it is not independent. It doesn't exist as a true emotion. It only has a contingent existence. If you take the truth away, you can't have the anger. It has no independent existence. And so, maybe the language is a bit strong, so I call it a parasite, because it lives on the face of love. The true one is is the love. Very often, because it makes so much noise, what we think is the true one is the anger. You look at a Bob Geldof, beating up everyone around the world to get them to perform, but he loves justice. He loves that in a world of plenty, no one should go without. That's what he loves. So it's the love which makes the anger possible. It has no independent existence. The second question... To dissolve anger. To dissolve anger, yes. 
Well, if it was real, you would have a problem dissolving it. And the way to dissolve it is to, I'm suggesting wisdom, Patanjali has suggested the way to dissolve it is through a statement of truth. And this statement of truth, which is the one that's up here, that the fruit of negative feelings, and feelings being the anger, is endless ignorance and suffering. And in working with groups of students using this, and my own experience, that works. You could take that away with you tonight and try it. The beauty of it is, because it connects with the higher organ of mind, it doesn't go through the thinking, rationalizing, understanding process. That's too long. It takes too long. Your case is lost long before you get to the end of that. This works instantly. It has the power to just give that space which allows you to dissolve the anger. And you should try that. You should take that away tonight and try it. The reason it works is because it's a true statement. There's that in us which recognizes the truth and which is powerful enough to dissolve it. And in the recognition, the false idea is dissolved. That's what happens. There's a kind of a mechanism which is the subject of a whole philosophy evening sometime. But basically that's what it is, yeah. I was just thinking about the origins of anger and what this gentleman said kind of led into that and how deep they can go or how far back they can go. Just this week I had the experience of being part of a meeting about a traumatic situation that happened in a family to the mother a number of years ago. There were three kids but two children who were twins at about, about eight years of age at the time of the trauma. So we're now four years on. The situation is very critical. One of the young kids is becoming a teenager, and he is completely and utterly out of control in anger. He's stabbing, punching, mm -hmm. kicking, out all night, drinking. He's not even a teenager yet. And apparently when the original incident, he went into himself. And now it's all lashing out. Yeah. And so there's a tremendous sense of worry and where do you go now at, at sure. this point? You know, how far back does anger, or where does it come from, and how deep? But it can come from anywhere. Again, you take a broader philosophical context. But it does seem that some people are burdened with an angry disposition from very early on, even coming from the same family situation. And it's very, very difficult for them. And you just hope that under grace, or that they meet someone along the way, who may well be able to relieve them from it. But it comes from ourselves. <laughs> and that's another big philosophical question. Is this creation random and haphazard? Or is it operating under law? If it's operating under law and there's behavior, what's the law? Sometimes it can take you a whole lifetime to make that decision, whether this is a haphazard creation happening just by chance, or whether it's lawful in every way. If it's lawful, then the people who find themselves in difficult situations are there under some law. The one that's often referred to as the law of karma, the law of cause and effect. 
and that uh, somehow or another we carry this with us. And so you find in very young people, find this behavior very difficult to deal with. Very difficult. And you just hope that they will be healed. And just leading on from that, can anger be genetic? And can it be passed on from one generation to the next? Yeah. That's the big philosophical question, yeah. The philosophical position is that if we find ourselves in an angry disposition, we need to look at ourselves, not our parents, our grandparents, including looking at ourselves <laughs> further back than our appearance on the scene here. You mentioned earlier that Bob Geldof, his anger gets people to do things for yes. him, right? So would you say if Bob Geldof hadn't got angry with people or put pressure on people, mm. he may not have achieved what he achieved. Would you say that anger can be positive on any occasion? <laughs> yeah. The whole thrust of the argument is that anger is frustrated love. That's what the proposition is. And if that is understood, which do you think is the more potent force, the love or the anger? The other side of the coin is Bono, right? He wants to love the world into relieving debt. Geldof wants to beat the world into a <laughs> They're quite different. But the true emotion is love. Love will prevail. Possibly the redeeming feature there is that people recognize it as frustrated love. Right, right. Well, very good, yes. And therefore they will Definitely. accept it. Yeah. Are you happy with that proposition, the way things are and the way you'd like them to be? Is that clear, is it? Yeah, yeah. That's such a useful understanding because there is nothing you can do that will change things the way they are. So acceptance is the only thing that makes any sense. But for some reason or other, we go for the senseless of being angry or whatever. I've always been somewhat confused with acceptance in the true sense versus acceptance. Like acceptance means you roll over that you don't have to do anything. You know, that, well, fine, I, there's nothing I can do, I'll have to. Whereas accepting as it is right now doesn't mean that I don't need to change or can't take no, steps. No, absolutely not, yeah. That's a very good point. In order to accept, you've got to be conscious. It's a conscious thing to do to accept, okay? The automatic response is a mechanical, habitual thing. But to be conscious, you've got to be present. And the present moment is the point, is the point, the only point really, where you can accept what is. There's a statement which comes from the wise which is maybe challenging or interesting, but it, it goes like this. It says that the present moment is the imminent absolute. So if it's possible for us to be present, then all the force or all the power that can cope with the situation is available. The present moment is the imminent absolute. Acceptance is to do with now. Anger is to do with what has happened, what's going to happen, what you'd like to happen, and what you want to do. Acceptance is a thing of the moment, conscious. Feet on the ground. Now.
That's the nature of it. That's why meditation is so useful, is because in meditation, you're sitting down, your eyes are closed, the body is still, and the present moment comes to you in the form of a simple sound. Couldn't be simpler. Each repetition comes in the present moment as a simple sound. No thinking, no considering, no worrying, doubting, fearing. Just connecting with that present moment. That's what's useful about it. It's its simplicity and its immediacy. I mention that because it often happens that what we think is that the meditation is the totality of the practice. Don't miss <laughs> the presence <laughs> of the practice. Each repetition. It's a good place to practice being present. Not that easy for us to be present. Michael, what about love of country? You can be angry, you can kill for love of country, or you can kill for love of your uh, countrymen against foreign domination. Well, would it be justified, you know, are you angry if you kill? Hmm. Big question. You've got to go to the famous, the most famous uh, conversation that took place was on the battlefield of Kurukshetra when Arjuna asked this question of his charioteer, who happened to be Krishna. He knew there was civil war. If this war starts, I am now going to be killing my relations, my teachers, and my kinsmen. He got some extraordinary advice from Krishna. Anybody know what his advice was? Yes, you're a soldier. You have to kill people. Yeah, he was a warrior. But there was more than that. He had to kill them, but to answer the question, to kill them and to go through the motions, realizing that... He didn't really kill them. The Lord of all, they were already dead before the battle started because the Lord of all is the author of life and death. So how he did what he did was crucial. And the answer to the question is you may have to serve your country, you may find yourself in that situation, but how you do what you do determines the quality of the act. You're walking down the street, there's a homeless person sitting on the road, and you give them 50p. There's a person behind you, walking behind you, meets the homeless person and gives them 50p. Is it the same act? Same amount, but it's not the same act. <laughs> Why is it not the same act? The motive. The motive. What determines the quality of the act? The motive. So it's not the 50p, it's not the amount. It's not the handing over the amount. It's the inner content of that action. What is the motive? What is your motive? In that Arjuna example, all other communication has actually come to an end. All other efforts have been exhausted, I recall. Like, it's not that you just decide, right, you're going to go off and kill. Oh, no, but this, this was I mean, a, it, yeah. It's the end. Resort. The end of the world, it's yeah. It's mm. the last resort. Yeah. Very good. Is there anything else going to keep us awake tonight? Well, very good. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and enjoy the new term. <laughs>